Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, actin.org, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, as well as all of our other podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find the show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dylan Pommen, Research Fellow and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality. This week, we'll be discussing uh, President Biden's meeting with the Pope, and yes, we will talk about Dune. But first, I want to go to Virginia, and we don't get into politics qua politics, and certainly not campaign politics, but I want to start there because... Tomorrow, people will be voting in a gubernatorial election in Virginia between the Republican Glenn Youngkin and the Democrat Terry McAuliffe. And what is interesting to me about this race is how much of it has boiled down to questions over public schools and public education. So what built up to this is, if you rewind to last year, um, and we'll kind of leave as prologue any other pre-existing issues that I'm sure all of us have talked about with regard to public schools and public education, the problems there, the orientation of it, just as prologue. But you have the shutdowns during the coronavirus pandemic. You have teachers unions that have been and still in some places remain resistant to the idea of reopening these schools in any kind of a timely manner or without any kind of um, restrictions uh, that go beyond the what I think most people would call reasonable restrictions. But even in some places, it has been only recently that they've gotten their kids back into school buildings. And in Virginia in particular, but also across the rest of the country, you have a lot of conversation about the inclusion of uh, critical race theory within the curriculum of a lot of these schools. And I you know, the standard caveat that, you know, it, perhaps it's not exactly critical race theory, but it's a it's a good term that we can use to talk about certain elements of the curriculum. And I think most people will know what we mean by all of that. And it has this race has really, I think, crystallized that this is an issue. But I don't want to talk about the race itself. Of course, I want to talk about what all is surrounding the issues within public schools right now and what the future of public education in America might be if we are to believe that this could be a moment where we're ready to talk about public education differently than we have in years past where most of the conversation was just about more money for schools and whatever teachers want which is essentially the message that Terry McAuliffe is using. And we're actually seeing parents in Virginia not respond to that. So, Sam, I want to go to you first. Um, feel free to add any other problems within public education. But do you think there's an opportunity in 2021 America to finally start going in a different direction for what has largely been, in my opinion, a failing effort at public education? Thanks, Eric. Well, one of the interesting things about COVID is that it had lots of unintended consequences. One is that as a consequence of public schools being shut for lots, very long periods of time, much longer, it turns out, in many cases than uh, 
private forms of education. Quite a few parents have moved their children out of public schools and into some form of private setting, be it a religious school, be it a classical school, be it homeschooling, be it a type of virtual ethics school, etc. There's lots of different options which are available. So corona in that sense has broken a type of cycle, a type of way of thinking among some people, obviously not all, but some people about the place of public education in their children's lives. Uh, One of the things that strikes me as someone who's born outside the United States and you come to the United States is that there's a lot of it, there's a very strong attachment in parts of the country, maybe even most of the country, to the idea of public education. Even when schools are not doing so well, even when it's very obvious that they're performing at a spa at below par level, there's a tremendous sense among a lot of American communities that public education is a good thing. It's a little bit like the National Health Service in Britain, right? It's one of these untouchable things. You can't criticize it. You can't say that there's, there's, um, there's something fundamentally problematic about the whole enterprise in the first place. These are they're sort of the things that you're not allowed to say or out loud. Well, I think COVID has changed that somewhat. And frankly, the behavior of the teachers unions during this whole exercise has exacerbated the problem insofar as it's very clear that they were being obviously still being paid. They were not teaching for the most, in many cases, at any sort of deep, intensive level. So people, I think, uh, have turned a certain corner. Now, I think it's fair to say that we shouldn't exaggerate the change in mentality that's happened. I think it's clear that there are still lots of people who very much believe in public education, who are determined to try and turn it around in those parts of the country where it's not particularly working well. There are others who are... particularly in more over the past, say, two, three years, have become much more concerned about, let's call it the ideological dimension, the ideological viewpoint that seems to be perpetrated and pushed continuously by many teachers in these schools. So I I wouldn't say that we're at, at, at an inflection moment. I think that's a highly overused expression, and I'm not sure that we're there when it comes to this. But what is clear, I think, is that there is more space now for people to talk about and participate in alternatives to public education. There's a sense, a greater sense among more parents, I think, not necessarily a majority, but quite a lot of parents, that they're not happy with the ideological tone that has become more omnipresent over the past few years with regard to all sorts of subjects. So maybe there's a type of opening for a, for a reconsideration of this. Now, we shouldn't underestimate just how stacked the, the, the cards are against a fundamental reconsideration of this, right? Because the Department of Education at both the federal level and at the state level and the local level has no particular interest in its own demise. Um, teachers unions have their own particular agenda. I'll never forget hearing one teachers union um, official say something like, well, we're not here for the children. We're here to protect the interests of the teachers. It's the possibly apocryphal Albert Shanker quote that um, when he asked when he would start representing the interests of school children, his answer was allegedly when they start paying union dues. <laughs> yeah, um, but that's, I mean, I don't know. That's probably apocryphal. Well, I don't know. But it does reflect, I think, some of the forces at work when it comes to rethinking these sorts of things. 
you know, it, it's a very different world to what public education, public school education was like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So um, there's lots of potential opportunities and we have seen um, a percentage of parents shifting their children out of public schools and taking them into more private settings, which I think is generally a good thing. Whether it's going to change the tone and um, content of the debate in terms of, well, all we need to do is just spend more money or whatever it happens to be. Yes, yeah, so for we will see. The original, one of the original goals of public schooling was to create good citizens. And I don't know that there are a lot of parents out there anymore, um, or at least of those who are attuned to what is going on in public schools, who think that they're accomplishing that. I think the fight over curriculum that is tied to questions about critical race theory um, certainly highlights areas in which we're not teaching people to be good American citizens. We may be trying to teach them to be good citizens of the world or something like that. But the idea of teaching any sense of love of country certainly seems to be out the window. And it strikes me that uh, with regard to the orientation of public schools towards the children that they are educating is a lot more like uh, what Woodrow Wilson had said about to him, the point of education was to make children as unlike their parents as the system possibly could. So um, I think I have a probably a more cynical take on a lot of this. And that's that. Um, I mean, I, I, okay. First of all, to speak the more general issues. Yes. I think um, people absolutely should be concerned about the education of their children. And we should be concerned about, um, you know, our public school systems in many cases uh, seem to fall short on just basic fundamentals. Uh, you know, what made a good citizen uh, in the 19th century was someone who can read and write and do math so they can go work in a factory. Right? I mean, there, yeah, there was, okay, sure, sing a patriotic song and, you know, whatever. Well, according to some um, people like Josh Hawley, that may be what makes a good citizen for him right yeah, now. Yeah, maybe too, today so. too. Yeah, I don't know. But, um, but so those fundamentals... I think are still important. And you maybe you can make an argument. Uh, you could do like a market failure sort of argument and say, well, maybe a lot of people can afford private school, but not everybody. You know, I'm not saying I buy into this, but that would be the, the argument. And you say, well, there's a role for the state to provide schooling for the parents who otherwise would not be able to afford to educate their children. Uh, this is probably also something uh, people were asking, well, now that we can't send our kids to factories anymore, due to child labor laws, what do we do with them, right? So there's a childcare aspect to it. There always has been. Uh, but my cynical take on things like critical race theory and other concerns um, kind of relate to your caveat that it's not one thing, whatever it actually is, that's not actually what it, you can't, it's like a college level sort of thing. You're not teaching that to third graders. It's just not happening. Um, and so on both sides, the people who want it and the people who don't want it are probably making too much of it. The other thing is I just remember being a kid uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, the sci a different science fiction author than what we're going to talk about later, uh, he has this great essay or speech where he talks about watching his kids watch TV uh, and how uh, he sees them watch the advertisements and he knows how other parents worry about, oh no, are they going to trick my kid into liking Cocoa Puffs or whatever, right? And he's, he looks at his kids and he's like, my kids aren't buying this. Like kids are Kids have, you know... BS detectors just built in. And I remember being a kid and any, any you know, you want to bring out cynicism in children, force them to go to like a school spirit rally or, you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance or whatever. I mean, that kids, especially as they get older, but even even kind of younger than you might expect, can really see through that sort of thing. So I don't know that it works. 
I mean, I, I, I understand the worries, but I just don't know that it works. Um, and yeah, so I guess that's like the, the little bit that I would say is in terms of like make shaping good citizens, it's sort of like religion. It has to happen in the home. If that's really what you want your kid to be, teach them what it means to be a good American. Uh, don't try to outsource that to schools because what you really want to count on for schools, what they ought to be able to be counted on uh, is the basic stuff, reading, writing, maybe, you know, math, maybe some other science history, whatever. But a lot of the other stuff is is more than we should expect, I think. I think I go back and forth on the question of whether or not it works, because for a while now, when you looked at kids as they moved up through that education system into universities and then out of universities into the workforce for so long, people who were expressing fear about the way that uh, students on college campuses were acting in illiberal ways, uh, the, the whatever you would have termed to be snowflake culture or cancel culture with on college campuses, within and on college campuses. One of the things that people would say is that, well, you know, don't worry, they'll get out in the real world, they'll be mugged by reality, and they'll drop all of this. But you see, uh, at least in high-profile examples, how um, millennial and, in some cases, Gen Xer bosses are clearly afraid of the younger people who are working for them, and thus the ideology that they've come out of those universities with. Uh, they are applying within their workplace. And I think you see that with regard to a lot of the, the craziness right now. So I, what I think is the problem with the bans, the attempts to ban things like critical race theory from being taught in schools, uh, I think I think there are a number of issues with that effort. Um, part of it is that you're writing legislation on curricular matters, whereas, you know, if, if what you're talking about is a question of political power, accum, you know, accumulate and acquire the correct political power and change the curriculum yeah, rather than passing legislation to say boards are elected you know, you, usually. Right. right. Like. Right. So rather than saying you cannot teach this, but also mm-hmm. I think, Dylan, to your point, one of the you can breed a lot of cynicism in kids by, you know, trying to tell them that this is true and this is what to believe. And kids, I think you're right, generally have that approach. A good way to get them super interested in something is to tell them you cannot learn this. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. a line from the um, the the Simpsons where uh, Bart and, and Ralph are at Chief Wiggum's house. And you know they get into uh, they they get into his his closet and he's like, what is it with you kids and the forbidden secret closet of mystery? <laughs> um, it's it's the exact same reaction in children that you tell them they can't know something, and all of a sudden you'll get them more interested in in all of it. Uh, but I, I, I so I I think it still, however, would be better if we weren't as a matter of course, in too many public school curriculums, teaching students as we seem to be, uh, rather than a proper and grade level understanding of the flaws of this country when it was founded and the, our original sl- sin of slavery, to teach essentially a curriculum dictated now by the 1619 Project that says America is terrible and irredeemable and you know, continue to believe that as you travel through the rest of your life. I mean, my my thought on that, Sam, I don't know if you have anything to add. My thought on that, though, is that there's just a lot of kids that will look around and be like, I don't know. I think it's all right here. <laughs> right. It's, you know, maybe that's not like so profound, but I think that happens that if you go too heavy handed. There are negatives in American history. I learned them even at my blue collar public school. My middle school lost its accreditation the year after I graduated. So not I loved my school, my teachers, not really the highest quality education, um, but we still learned about that stuff. We learned about slavery. We learned about 
um, going back on treaties with Native Americans, that sort of stuff, uh, wounded knee. Um, but we, we also learned that, hey, there's some positive ideal, ideals here. Um, and marginalized groups have managed to make those their own and make that vision of America their own. So I don't know. I, I guess I, 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 I'm curious to know how many schools really are allowing the 1619 project to dictate their curriculum, or is this just something that's making headlines and not really affecting actual classrooms? Well, there is some evidence that they have, you know, there is some evidence that the 1619 project has made its way onto the curriculum of, um, I don't know how many schools, but quite a few high schools throughout the country, and, and not least because the 1619 project are trying to do that because remember they 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 have it's not just these essays that they put forward in the New York Times whenever it came out a couple of years ago they have a whole curriculum that's attached to it in fact i wrote a paper about it looking at some of the claims that were made when it came to american economic history 90% of which were factually wrong and or incoherent and or illogical. Um, so there is a concerted effort because I think this is how, you know, there are some people who do view education in these sorts of ideological terms. Now, if you're going to a private school, and let's say it's a Presbyterian school or a Catholic school or a um, reform school or whatever it happens to be, then by definition, you're choosing for your child to be given formation in whatever is the religion of that the school is uh, there, at least in part, to propagate. The difficulty, I think, with, with one of the difficulties that public education has is that, is, is that it, it, it's, very, it's much harder for it to make some sort of commitment to a particular view of the world because by definition, at least in the way that, that public education is, is orientated today, it's not there to impart a vision of the world, whereas a Catholic school is or a, a reform school is or a Presbyterian school is or a Jewish school is or a Muslim school is. So I think in many respects that's, that causes problems for public schools because, you know, well, it, it's very hard not to communicate some sort of view of the world, right? And so that provides an opening for all sorts of groups to try and move in and try and push a particular view of the world. And let's not forget that, um, that one of the things shaping public education and the way that public education developed in the United States was, of course, the Blaine Amendments, right, <laughs> which were, you know, explicitly anti-Catholic in the way that they were structured and were basically designed to try and sort of push Catholics out of the public square, marginalise Catholics to try and, and make the education system, <clears throat> so in the name of neutrality, quite anti-Catholic in many respects. And some of those things are still on the books, right? But that had an influence in the way that I think that that public school education developed. So it's it's a very complicated series of series of problems that <clears throat> it's going to be very difficult to untangle at some point. And a lot of parents are saying, well, okay, I in principle support public education, but I'm out. My children are out because I don't want my child to pay the price of being in what in many cases highly dysfunctional 
confusing environments. And I, I take Dylan's point. There's uh, in lots of public schools, you'd get a you get a sort of relatively balanced perspective on things. Uh, you do even in in many classical schools or religious schools. You also hear about the negative part of American history. It's hard to deny. I mean, who's going to deny that some bad things happened? But at least there is in at least in many of these places, not all. At least there is. On the other hand, there's all these other things about America which are worth reflecting upon and even worth celebrating because they reflect something good. And we as a people, or we as a people, a group of particular confessional group, have played a role in that. So. So how we get out of this, I'm not sure, but I do think COVID has provided some sort of opening for a rethinking and has certainly put, uh, let's call it the the orthodox position on these issues on the defensive in a way that it hasn't been for some time. Here's why I am hopeful that some kind of meaningful reform in public education is in the offing and why it simultaneously makes me a little bit sad. So for most of the last 15 years of my life before moving here to Grand Rapids, I was in the city of Chicago, which has, uh, as far as I'm concerned, a notoriously bad public education system. You have um, somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of students who uh, are contest up to grade level in English and in math. Uh, You have the last time I checked on this number, I believe it was, so don't hold me to the exact number, but I'm not far off out of the Roughly, now it's less than 400,000 kids who are within that system, the Chicago public school system. About eight out of every 100 would go on to get a bachelor's degree by the time that they are 25. Stipulate all the issues with higher education and the cost of all of it and what is effectively it is a credentialing process at this point. Set all that aside. That's another interesting conversation to have on another episode of this podcast. Nonetheless, uh, for what we know about lifelong earning potential and what having a bachelor's degree means for that, eight out of every, I think it may have even been up to 12, but still 12 out of every 100 students in a system of 400,000 kids were going to get a bachelor's degree by the time they were 25. And in all the years that I would talk about public education in Chicago, Believe me, I was told that I was wrong for all kinds of different reasons. But the one that I was never told by anyone was, Cone, you're just wrong, man. CPS, that's a system that's educating kids. Nobody ever rebutted my arguments with that. And the, what I'm sad about in all of this is I think one of the things that is spurring a lot of parental dissatisfaction that was revealed by the coronavirus pandemic is what that revealed about teachers in public schools. And for a long time, I would always make the clear distinction to say, you know, when I'm criticizing the actions of teachers' unions, I am not talking about individual teachers. There are a lot of great individual teachers. There there always was very much a kind of similar effect to Congress in the way that people would talk about hating Congress, but they love their congressmen. People would say that they hate, you know, um, the the problems in public schools and the teachers unions are a problem, but they love their individual teacher. And I think something has been broken in the last year plus where you saw the individual teachers also fighting alongside the union 
to keep schools closed, to keep things remote. And you had a lot of information revealed of conversations between teachers, if anybody, and I am hands, uh, I'm friends with a handful of people who are public educators on social media, people that I went to school with at different points in my life, and to see the way that they talk about parents as being problems for them. The disdain that they seem to have for parents who wish to Mm -hmm. get involved. I always thought this was a weird dichotomy of opinion that they had, that they would, on one hand, constantly complain that parents weren't more involved in the education of their kids. And much like the car dealer problem, right? When you buy a new car and you love it, you don't call the car dealer and tell them how much you love it. But if there's something wrong, you're on the phone or you're back in the car dealership immediately. Often when parents showed up and got involved, it was because there was something wrong. And then they seemed to be incensed about the fact that parents were getting involved in this manner. I think something has broken. I think it is sad because I do believe I've interacted with enough people who are teachers that there are some really great teachers out there. But I think that there is an attitude that is, uh, as of course we would say, incentives matter, right? The incentive structures of public sector unions like teachers unions cause otherwise completely decent and reasonable people to act in indecent and unreasonable ways. And I think the reason I'm hopeful is because I think parents are looking at this now and seeing a lot more of this and realizing that something there has to change. Although the form that that change will take, I can't say I'm certain on at this point in time. Yeah, it's it's a bit like uh, after the 2016 election, you know, everybody used to say, if we could get, just get higher voter turnout, you know, get a more active yes. electorate. Yes. Uh, that'd be so great if all these people were involved in uh, doing their civic duty and voting. And then afterwards, people were like, well, we didn't mean those people. Oh, my goodness. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not what we wanted. That, oh, no. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that I think people are finding out the parents aren't what they thought they were or, you know, I don't what they wanted them to be is probably more accurate. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I could I could go on about teachers unions and everything as well but um well why don't um, why don't we take an opportunity here to transition topics because of course we can come back yeah. to education in the future and for for the next two topics of this podcast um i it, it's going to be a little bit like in uh, the godfather where uh at, at the dinner between Salazzo and uh, michael corleone Salazzo turns to uh mccluskey and says uh, i'm going to speak italian to my friend here uh, as i'm going to talk primarily to sam about our next topic for which i could speak italian <laughs> if i was able to <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, yet, Does yet this mean revealed. I get whacked? Um, this is why everybody out there needs to stay tuned. Uh, and then I will come back to Dylan primarily for our final topic. But Sam, in the uh, last week, President Joe Biden, uh, who is traveling internationally and is currently in uh, Scotland for a summit on issues surrounding climate change, for which hundreds and hundreds of people have all flown planes into the United Kingdom so that they can have this conversation. Uh, always worth pointing that kind of thing out that, you know, I, I think climate change is a real thing and I take it seriously and I wish other people would as well. Uh, but let us focus on the meeting that President Biden had with Pope Francis. And Sam, I'm just tempted to say thoughts. <laughs> Well, there's a lot that one can say. First of all, the, it's it's normal for any American president, uh, certainly since John F. Kennedy was uh, president of the United States, to pay a courtesy visit to the Pope. The Pope both as the head of the Catholic Church, the successor of Peter, but also as the head of uh, the Holy See, which is an internationally recognized 
uh, legal sovereign state under international law. So, so it's very normal. So every president has more or less gone and seen the Pope since JFK. I think he was the first to – the first, I think. I don't think Eisenhower did. I don't think – Eisenhower certainly um, met um, Giovanni Battista Montini when he was the Archbishop of Milan when he um, – I think he visited Notre Dame. There was this famous encounter between the man who would eventually become Paul VI and uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. So every president has done this. And then, of course, the, under President Reagan, the United States recognized the Holy See as a diplomatic entity, exchanged ambassadors, and has uh, since then. There was a lot of protest about that at the time, we forget, but that has been normal. So there's been an exchange of ambassadors. Uh, and the nuncio to the United States has an ambassadorial status, et cetera. So that's sort of the diplomatic dimension of this. So in that sense, Mr. Biden going and seeing uh, uh, Pope Francis is entirely normal. The context, of course, is that this is the second Catholic president of the United States who uh, is a practicing Catholic who describes himself as being a Catholic in good standing, which is curious. I don't think any Catholic should say that about themselves, right? Because we don't know. <laughs> um, but of course, it comes amidst controversy about the fact that President Biden's position on the question of abortion is, politically speaking, is diametrically opposed to stated Catholic teaching on the subject, on that particular subject. He is about as distant from that position as it could be. He wasn't always, it's worth remembering. It's, it's worth remembering that in the 1970s, most Democrats tended to be on the pro-life side and Republicans tended to be on the other side, which tells you something about how American politics has changed. And of course, the other specifically Catholic context of this is that uh, there is an argument among American bishops about how uh, public officials who are professed Catholics, especially those who advertise the fact that they are Catholic, and a lot do, not all of them do, but a lot of them do, who have a, let's call it a pro-choice position on that particular issue, how they should be regarded in terms of are they in communion with the Catholic Church, right? So to be in communion with the Church means that you adhere to its teachings. Now, one of the things that a lot of pro-choice Catholic politicians have done is to say, well, I'm personally opposed to the taking of innocent human life before birth. I'm personally opposed to that. But I can't possibly impose my position on the rest of the country because it's a religious position. I'm not allowed to do that, etc. I mean, we know the argument. We also know that you don't need to be religious, let alone a Catholic, to see the grave injustice that's involved with abortion. I mean, you can be an atheist and be completely opposed to abortion on the grounds that this is an unjust violation of a human life that is human as your life or my life or anyone else's life from the moment of conception until death. So, <clears throat> the, but the bishops are, have been arguing about this subject really for the past 40 years about this subject. There are some bishops who say, um, a, a politician, regardless of what party they belong to, who holds these positions, who consistently votes in favour of an um, expansive abortion licence and who does nothing to try and limit 
the, the extent of that license is clearly at odds with the teaching of the Catholic Church, is clearly at odds with what natural law tells us about these issues, is clearly at odds with the facts of human biology, and they are willfully taking a position that is contrary to the teaching of the Church and therefore are out of communion with the Church. And there are, there are consequences in terms of receiving communion as a consequence of that. So, so, that, so there are bishops who say such politicians should not be presenting themselves for communion. If they consistently do so and they have not, clearly not changed their position on this issue, then the church should not be offering them communion, both in terms of expressing the fact that they are not in communion with the church, but also... Um, it's a type of um, medicinal help. That's often how it's described, to make the person aware of the serious position that they're putting themselves in in terms of the sal their salvation, right? Because they're actively endorsing something that is considered by the Catholic Church to be um, an absolute moral evil. And if you want confirmation of that, read uh, yes. the entire history of the church is, is pretty much that position. If you read Evangelium Vitae, it's absolutely clear. You read the Catechism of the Catholic. So no one can say that they, they're unclear about this issue. On the other hand, there are other bishops who say, well, um, if we do this, if we deny communion, and these, by the way, these bishops are not saying, they're not saying that it's okay for them to be doing what they're doing. They're not saying that, at least openly they're not saying that that they're cool with what's going on. What, they are, what their position is, we should not be politicizing the Eucharist, that the Eucharist is a position whereby the humble sinner comes forward to receive the Eucharist, etc. Now, I happen to think that that position is highly tenuous. It violates canon law, among other things. But that's the state of play when it comes to the U.S. bishops. So we have seen a parade of Democrat politicians going off to the Holy See and being very publicly received. Senator, uh, Speaker Pelosi just did this recently, you know, turned up wearing the black matia, dressed in black, and standing next to the Pope, etc. And there's no doubt in my mind that there's a political calculus going on here in the minds of a lot of Democrat, pro-choice, Catholic politicians. There's no doubt in my mind that this is quite deliberate and they're playing a game. Now, I'm not sure it, it sways people in terms of votes or anything like that, but it's a way of trying to maneuver their position vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic bishops in the United States, as well as what's going on among the bishops themselves. Now, Pope Francis has, like any pope, made it very clear that abortion is a serious uh, moral mortal sin and that support for abortion, I mean, he uses the expression a hitman. He, he, I don't know if you know this, but he actually said it's like hiring a hitman to get rid of an um, unpleasant problem. So he's actually quite earthy in the way that he describes this. He has also said that, um, that it obviously has consequences for people in terms of their communion with the church. He's more or less said it does um, undermine their communion with the church. Um, so then we have President Biden turn up and say, well... Pope told me I'm a good Catholic and that I should receive communion. Yeah, I, I want to read the, the actual quote there and, and first to acknowledge that uh, the hitman is a good callback to my uh, godfather transition, so I appreciate that. Um, but also, yeah, it, I'll give you the quote because it sounds uh. as if, 
hearing what Biden said after the meeting, you would think that essentially he had an audience with the Pope where the Pope told him, live your life. Um, is Biden said abortion did not come up in the meeting. Quote, we just talked about <laughs> the fact that he was happy that I was a good Catholic and I should keep receiving communion, which, you know, uh, one, I don't know that that conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and yet they didn't one, talk about abortion. that happens. <laughs> OK, um, but two. I don't really think that it did. And it exactly sounds like the kind of thing that somebody who wanted to make that point already would just come out and say. Yes. And, you know, the the thing is, Eric, I've even read some, let's call them uh, uh, progressive Catholics, say more or less the same thing. That it's – now, I'm not calling the president a liar. Um, he has a pretty good track record when it comes to that, we should mention. <laughs> Maybe he's just plagiarizing <laughs> a conversation the that the Pope had with somebody <laughs> else, perhaps Neil Kinnock. Um. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But, I mean, but but I've even seen some progressive Catholics say, you know, this sounds highly a highly unlikely scenario precisely because of what you just pointed out, right? Because if abortion didn't come up, why would the Pope say say this to him? And in fact, I can't imagine the Pope saying to someone, you're a good Catholic, when they have no idea about this person, who they are, what they believe, how they act. I mean, we, I would never say that about um, anyone. I wouldn't even say it about myself, right? So it sounds highly, let's say, it sounds highly tenuous. Even some progressive Catholics who would normally be quite supportive of President Biden have... <laughs> You know, more or less said, yeah, this doesn't sound so accurate. This sounds tenuous. So um, I think that's I think that's the best way we can understand it. Of course, the Holy See made a point of saying we don't comment on private conversations between the Holy Father and heads of state or heads of government. And frankly, if that's the case, so should the President of the United States should also refrain from speaking about those sorts of things. But Mr. Biden is a career politician of the most crony type that you can possibly imagine, of which there are plenty on both sides of politics. Let's, let's be very clear about this. They all play the religious card when they want to. And, you know, it was very interesting. The next day, the next day it was – on the on President Biden's tweet feed, there's a tweet saying, go out and vote for, we talked about this before, Terry McAuliffe in the Virginia election because he'll protect re- reproductive rights. And I thought, wow, you didn't even wait 24 hours before. So, I, I mean, this is the part of the problem, I think, which is the more general thing, is that it is, to my mind, inconceivable that Catholic bishops are still arguing about this question 40 years after this came up, that they have not managed to resolve this particular issue, that um, they're still arguing among themselves. But what's also very clear is that what's often called the quote-unquote pastoral approach, you know, we, we keep them talking to them, we keep dialoguing with them, they come to communion, they receive communion. Where, and mo- but the problem, of course, is that this has clearly not changed the hearts and minds of a lot of these pro-choice Catholic politicians, whatever party they belong to, right? So it hasn't worked. And that, for a bishop, if you're a priest or a bishop, you know, your first concern is for the soul of the person that you're dealing with. Joe Biden's soul, Nancy Pelosi's soul, 
any pro-choice Republican Catholic soul. That's what they should be concerned with. And it seems to me that a lot of bishops, when they think about these issues, they default to a type of political reading of the situation. And I knew that, now, I don't know what's going on in some of these cases. I don't know, for example, if Archbishop Cordiglione of San Francisco is engaged in some sort of conversation with Nancy Pelosi about this. I don't know if Cardinal Gregory of Washington, D.C. is engaged in some sort of conversation with uh, President Biden about this. I don't know, and it's really not my business to know. It's not any of our businesses to know. But I sure hope those conversations are going on because it seems to me that's the responsibility of the bishop vis-a-vis the souls of these individuals. If you really believe that souls are there and salvation is not guaranteed and that you can, there are sins, as um, the church's teaching has always said, there are sins that literally cut us off from communion with the church and, we, and from the effects of grace until we go and make a full confession and reconcile ourselves with the church. Um, I mean, that's been the consistent position of the church, and I do worry that some, some Catholics, clergy and otherwise, have forgotten just how high the stakes are. Oh, I, I have nothing okay. to add. Uh, but I will interject <laughs> here, too. This would be a good opportunity to transition uh, to me now speaking, not Italian, but perhaps just nerd to my friend Dylan here uh, about uh, different kinds Um, about the movie Dune, um, which Dylan, you saw and have a piece up at Acton.org about. And I will just toss it to you to talk about uh, your experience and, and what you wrote. Well, Eric, I thought David Lynch did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Especially, did, 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 now, to it be didn't, clear, we're talking about it Denis didn't, Villeneuve. It didn't. Uh, uh, the movie did not tell me who killed Laura Palmer, so I'm still not going to go with David Lynch did a good job. So. <laughs> go ahead. Um, so the the film is based on the I believe it's 1965 uh, science fiction novel uh, Dune, um, written by Frank Herbert. This is the movie. Uh, is actually just part one, so they didn't they didn't try to do the whole story in one, as did David Lynch back in the 1980s. Um, but they they split it up, um, and it's a beautiful movie. It's it's very well cast, I think, very well acted, um, and and I think it's worth seeing for anybody into kind of the grand um, world building. You know, it's it's great for cinema. It's exactly the sort of thing. Although there is a lot of sand and darkness. So it's not not perfect. Uh but there's it's he does a great job. And I I've I mentioned in my blog post and I very much feel this was the case. It reminded me a little bit of Peter Jackson Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. When I saw that uh I was in high school and I remember thinking like wow how did he how did he know exactly how I imagined this scene in my mind? Like it, it just, you know, it has that sort of sense to it. That you're like, wow, this is it. This is exactly what I always wanted to see. Um, but at the same time, as I got older, I've revisited those. I've revisited the Lord of the Rings books. And uh, there's all sorts of things that you suddenly notice. That, oh, man. Like, like I remember being a kid reading, reading the Fellowship of the Ring. And I was like, man, there's all this poetry. I'm just going to like, you know, read through that really fast. Like it didn't interest me. Then as an adult, I was like, this is great, right? It just fills out the world. And I think there's a similar sort of thing going on with uh, Villeneuve's Dune and the Dune source materials. One friend pointed out there's, there's a character, uh, Gurney, uh, for example. He's this warrior. He's kind of somewhat of a right-hand man to the, the Duke Leto, who is uh, uh, head of House Atreides, one of the noble houses 
that is assigned to take over the desert planet Arrakis or Dune from the brutal Harkonnens who just were doing this extractive, oppressive, colonial sort of policy. Um, and it turns out, uh, this spoiler alert, but not a big one, turns out that it's, it's kind of a setup. Everybody knows it's a setup. They even know it's a setup going in. Uh, but anyway, um, so uh, Gurney is known for his songs. He's known for singing, right? And there's only one mention of Gurney singing, and it's towards the beginning when Paul, the son of the Duke and the protagonist of the film, uh, the story, uh, says, hey, 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 Gurney, how about a song? And Gurney says, no, it's time to fight. And like, you know, throws a sword at him and like, you know, they got to train and whatever. And like, uh, it's it's to me this amazing sort of missed opportunity. It's really subtle, whatever. Um, but that said, those are like you could so you can go on and on about those kind of details. If you're really into the books, it's a good reason to read the book if you never have uh, to see how full this world is uh, that they're drawing from. Uh, on the other hand, though, there's all kinds of great things that are still, I think, very well represented. And my post was about, in particular, a scene that really highlights um, the the importance of human dignity and valuing human life in, in dignity over economic interest and over political interest. Um, and in fact, Dune, Dune weaves together these things as well as religion. He's, he uh, was a, did this amazing thing where he kind of combines world religions into this new sort of thing. Um, and, and he does it in a really interesting way. So... Uh, in in this scene, though, uh, to to get back to the uh, the point, uh, in this scene, uh, the Duke wants to see um, a spice harvester. Spice is basically the petroleum of the galaxy or the universe. Yeah, it's, well, all, and 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 also a, a hallucinogen yes, because it, I always like it's the, also you know, like psilocybin. The, the, the yes. challenge to um, you know pitch a movie in just a couple of words, and for Dune, it was always what if sand were cocaine? Yeah. Um, but yes, continue. Cocaine and petroleum, right? Yes, right. All together in yeah. the one. Yeah. Um, and and Herbert, in fact, did experiment throughout his lifetime with psilocybin, which is uh, the the drug, the hallucinogenic um, component of magic mushrooms that makes people hallucinate. Um, and, uh, so he's kind of combining it with that. It's the sixties when he wrote this. Right. Um, and, uh, so the Duke wants to see this. And so they get in these ornithopters, which are basically like giant dragonfly looking dragonflies. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you know, space helicopters and, uh, and they fly over the sand crawler. It's this big, uh, vehicle. If you think, if you're a star Wars fan, maybe think of like the Jawa things or whatever, except this actually has a purpose to it. It's, uh, they're meant to like harvest this this spice from the which is what they call the the resource. In fact, Sam, I do have a contribution for you. It's called the spice melange. Do you know what melange means? Mixture. Oh, I thought it was mixture. Yeah. Um, so there we go. Um, some little Melos. a little bit of French. Um, and uh, and so he wants to see this harvesting. And so here they are. They're harvesting this um, spice and they're told there are these giant beasts that live beneath the sand, these sandworms. And they are, they guard the spice. They're attracted to it. And they're also attracted to the rhythmic noises of the mining and of any sort of uh, mechanical equipment. Um, And so every time somebody, one of these giant crawlers goes out there to harvest spice, they are on a time limit. Uh, It's only a matter of time before the worms are going to come and try to swallow whole the giant harvester because they're that big, that huge, that monstrous. And uh, and so the Duke's up there and he's talking with uh, their local guide who's supposed to be actually an impartial judge uh, named Leet Kynes. Uh, And Kynes is very skeptical of the Duke, uh, remembers the Harkonnens, uh, 
being brutal and extractive. And you kind of get the sense, and even more so in the book, that Kynes has gone native. In fact, Herbert even uses that word, that uh, Kynes basically considers himself in the book, herself in, in the movie. Uh, they uh, kind of switched the, the role a little bit, but it works very well. Um, and thinks, thinks of himself as a freeman, Fremen, which is the, the native people of Arrakis, uh, who um, it turns out are far more numerous than anybody thought, far more powerful. Um, and uh, this whole time, Kynes is very skeptical, right? You know, looking, looking at him, just really, really cynically evaluating everything uh, the Duke does. And so the Duke's up there and he's, he's overlooking his spice. And he's, it's basically like if, if any politician in the world is like, here, you have OPEC. Like, this is, this is your thing now. You tell them what to do. Um, and, you know, so the emperor, they need this spice for intergalactic travel. You can't have an intergalactic empire if you can't get from one planet to the other. Uh, it's literally the most important resource in the galaxy. Um, and that, in some sense, makes the Duke borderline the richest person in the galaxy, at least potentially so. Uh, so he's watching this harvester. They need to harvest this spice in order to be a success and not to be removed by the emperor. And... Uh, everything goes wrong. Uh, in the in the book, the there's supposed to be this carryall that comes to to pick up the harvester. It doesn't even show up, which is very suspicious and rightly so. In the movie, it shows up, but the but it fails. It, it, yeah, it yeah. fails. It tries to attach to the harvester to lift it out of the sand before the worm shows up and can eat it, and it fails. Uh, and uh, the Duke uh, says, "How many people are on that harvester?" And they say something like twenty three or whatever, twenty. 24, I don't know, um, and says, well, we got like three or four ornithopters here. Uh, we can we can get all but three people. But you know what? Let's overload the ornithopters. Let's risk our own lives. We're going to go in there and we're going to evacuate everybody. And the people there are like, hey, we can still get a little more spice. We can make this work. And he's like, no, we're not getting out of here. We just need to get the people. And he he wins kinds over with his his anger that anybody would not take better care of these people. There wasn't like a backup uh, carry-all. There wasn't some other way to evacuate these people that everybody was just saying, oh, don't bother. They're as good as dead. He said, we got vehicles. Let's go in and get them. And he risks their life. He risks the life of his son who's riding along with him, uh, all of his trusted men. And and he gets everybody out. Uh, and Kynes, uh, and there's a great line in the book that I included in the post, uh, it says, you know, despite himself and all of his, his hesitations, Kynes thought, I like this Duke. And and he notices, he says, this is this is power. This is something, this is a, a power beyond all of the intrigue in the book. You know, there's there's a lot of people trying to use other people, plans within plans, Herbert says. But here you have a Duke who actually cares about human beings. Uh, and he's, he notices that this is like the most powerful thing of all, that somebody who cares about people like that will evoke a following of fanatical proportions. This is a point that I got from Jonah Goldberg about science fiction that I think is a great observation about why it resonates with people generally and why it has been as popular as it is, is because you're, you're often setting things in these different worlds where everything else seems foreign. But the one thing you have to be able to connect with is an understanding of human nature, because if you have a, a world that is entirely foreign and a culture and a civilization that is entirely foreign and no kind of tunnel into that and, you know, an anthropological tunnel into that of understanding your understanding of your own human nature and being able to see that in the characters that are that are being presented in the book or on screen. The whole thing would be kind of foreign entirely and would just be a great kind of buzzing confusion to you. And because you can identify 
human nature, both in its its good and bad capacities in different parts of the story, it resonates with us. So I, I think that that is uh, one of the interesting things about science fiction I thought was pretty well represented in this film. And I, I come into this as somebody who hadn't read the book and I hadn't seen the David Lynch version of the movie. And I will say that um, I thought the movie was good. And if part of the impetus was to get me to want to read the original source material, I ordered a copy of the book that will arrive today yeah. Yeah. because I felt like I was missing out on a good amount um, by having by not having read the book before going in to see this movie because it does move things along a lot although I don't want to give people the impression that you if you've never read the book and never intend to you can't go see this movie I think you absolutely can but I I liked the point that you drew out of it um, in terms of uh, the respect for human dignity displayed there in that particular scene. I yeah. thought that was a good observation. I think that's what makes for any good adaptation. Is it a movie that gets people to want to read the book? And I think I think it accomplishes that. Um, on on your point uh, about humanity, uh, so Dune in some ways is, um, I, I don't think it's the only book or the first book, but in many ways it kind of ushered in um, a different sort of style of science fiction. Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't say exclusively so, but a lot of science fiction was concerned about the future of human technology. And so it's much more hard science fiction, whereas Dune is what's known as soft science fiction. It's about the future of humanity. It definitely has the human person at the center. Um, and actually, to to um, somewhat disprove my point, uh, I, I'm very fond of uh, C.S. Lewis has an essay on science fiction. Uh, I think at the time he called it scientific scientific fiction. They like combined the words. It was that old when he read the essay, but he talks about how if you want to write about other worlds, as human beings, we only have one other world we know of that we can tap into, and that's the world of the spirit. Uh, and that's something that Herbert does not neglect. Uh, religion plays a an absolutely fundamental role in the storytelling. You see echoes and hints of that uh, in Dune Part 1, um, and there's only going to be more of it as it goes along with all of the positives and negatives that go into, um, you know, civilizations and religion. Um, so I think it's well done. And I think for people uh, listening to this podcast who are interested in the intersection of faith and economics, um, Dune is is just a great, great way to really exercise your imagination of all the different ways this can work, has worked, might work, might fail uh, in the future. Um, and, and to think more critically and more imaginatively about these topics. Well, unlike the uh, movie, which uh, suddenly stopped in the middle, we're not stopping <laughs> this podcast randomly in the middle. This is actually the end, although I guess it will be a part two when uh, Dune part two comes out in 2023. So we'll have to pick up that conversation, part of the conversation there. But for now, I just realized there's an entire world I know nothing about. Maybe we have a single episode dedicated only to get Sam to watch Dune. Yeah. So we can, uh, we, can, we can come back and have a, a three-part conversation on this. But for now, we'll call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, again, please look in the show notes where you will find a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind. Or you can search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>